All right, hey, listen, I, I told the people last night, and I'm going to tell you this as well. Um, this morning, I'm going to try to go really slow and fast at the very same time. I don't know how I'm going to accomplish that. I don't know if I did it last night or not, but I'm going to try it again. I'm going to go fast, lots of material, but I'm also going to try to go slow so that we can really uh, get this into our head and get it into our heart, okay? I'm going to need you to participate. You with me? Thinking caps on. All right. Well, we're going to keep going in our study on the seven feasts of Israel. A couple of weeks ago, I gave you a quick overview of how Jesus has fulfilled the four feasts that are in the fall. In fact, you can go ahead and put that first slide up there, Scott, if you like. He has fulfilled the first four feasts at his first coming, and he will fulfill the three feasts that happen in the fall at his second coming. One of the things I've been saying every week we're learning is that the seven feasts of the Lord are a prophetic timeline of God's redemptive plan of salvation. I encourage you, if this is new to you, you, you don't have, you have you've never seen anything like that, never heard anything like this, go back and listen or watch the sermons over the last several weeks. You'll get a nice understanding and you'll see how powerful and important it is. Today, I want us to look at feast number six, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that Yom Kippur is Israel's holiest day of the year. And this morning, you're going to see why. One of the things I love about uh, this feast is that it teaches us a lot about the second coming of Christ, specifically how God is going to turn his attention to Israel during the seven-year tribulation that's coming upon the earth. Uh, we're going to look at that some next week. But also, it teaches us a lot about Jesus' first coming. I know it's a fall feast, but Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, also teaches us a lot about the first time Jesus came. And that's what we're going to cover this morning. How the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is a prophetic picture of the person and work of Jesus. Let me go ahead and give you this whole sermon in one sentence. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Lots of amens. It's because we know that this is, this is from Hebrews 9. This is actually a scripture and a principle in scripture. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And the title of this message this morning is cleansed, not covered. We'll go ahead and jump right in. Leviticus 23, you're welcome to turn there. I'm going to start reading in verse 27. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on exactly the 10th day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation. We've learned that that word, convocation, it means gather them all. Everyone needs to participate in this feast, in this celebration. You shall humble your souls. Your version might say afflict your souls. That commonly is known to mean it's a time of fasting. And offer a fire, present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day. For it is a day of atonement, meaning it's going to be a Sabbath day as well. They will rest. To make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. Okay, so whether you're looking at Yom Kippur from the perspective of Jesus' first coming 
or from the perspective of his second coming, you have to understand what atonement means. Because it's really not a, a word that we use unless we're at church. And even then, we might not, we might not exactly understand what it means. Kippur is from the Hebrew word kafar, which means to cover. So atonement means a covering. Yom Kippur, Yom means day. We learned that last week. The day of atonement. Yom Kippur, the day of covering. How many of you guys have ever heard of um, Noah's Ark? Raise your hand. Yeah, of course. God sent a flood to wash away the evil from the world. But he told a God-fearing man named Noah to build a big boat, right? Genesis 6, he says, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch. Cover it with pitch inside and outside. God goes on to give Noah some amazing blueprints for that ark. It was going to be massive. It was going to have many rooms. But listen, before he gave Noah all of those intricate measurements, he told him, cover it with pitch inside and outside. Why is that important? Pitch is like tar. It's what keeps the boat from sinking. Okay. Now think about it. As amazing as this ark would be, its design, its size, without that pitch, that boat won't float. Right? <laughs> Here's what's interesting. The Hebrew word for pitch is kafar. It's the same word used all over the Old Testament for atonement. It means to cover. It means to purge. It can mean to make reconciliation. Propitiate. All of those, all of those things. What, what does the story of Noah teach us? The ark is a picture of God's gracious gift of salvation. The pitch points to the blood of Jesus. The only way to obtain that salvation. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 and 9 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, justified means that we've been made right with God. Now that we've been made right with God by the blood of Jesus, how much more shall we be saved from wrath through him? This sounds like what happened to Noah, right? Listen, God's wrath is coming upon this earth. True or false? True. But God gave us a means of salvation, a vessel for forgiveness, Jesus. But the only way that we're saved from the flood, from God's wrath, is to apply the blood of Jesus to our lives. How do you apply the blood of Jesus? I want you to turn to John chapter 3. Let's hear the pages turning. Turn to John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 16. I know you know the verse. We all know the verse. But we're going to look at this. John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You guys there yet? Everybody look up here. God gave, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You could also say it this way. God so loved the world that he gave the world an ark. He gave the world a vessel for salvation. His one and only son. That everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We know that one, right? We all know that one. The world knows that one. Let's keep going though. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Did you notice how many times Jesus said, believe four times listen to me belief is the applicator belief is the applicator Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved you will escape wrath another word that the Bible uses is faith, right? We put our faith in Jesus. Romans 3, verse 5. God presented him, Jesus, listen to these words, as the atoning sacrifice through faith in his blood. Listen to me. Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross is the ark. But our faith that his blood is precious and powerful and able to cleanse us is what gets us into that ark. Ephesians 2, 8 really helps pull all that together. Okay. And, and we know this one. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Listen, you could read that this way. Uh, for it is by an ark that you have been saved through applying pitch. You hear me? The ark is a prophetic picture of God's gracious gift of salvation to mankind. The pitch is a prophetic picture of the blood of Jesus and the need to apply it. Listen, humanity was saved only because Noah remembered to put the pitch on the ark, right? On the inside and on. On the outside, pitch, kafar, atonement. True or false, you can clean up on the outside and still be pretty dirty on the inside. It's totally true. Well, good for you, brother. You never killed anybody. But you have hate in your heart and you murder your brother. You're bitter. Well, good for you. You've never committed adultery. But you don't realize how your pornography habit is breaking your heart's wife or your wife's heart, <laughs> whichever happens first. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? You can clean up on the outside, but what's going on in the inside? And Jesus made this point over and over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. You can go and read that. Noah told God told Noah to cover it on the inside and then 
on the outside. You got to get this. This is so important. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. God told Adam and Eve, if they ate from that one tree, you guys remember, if they ate from that one tree, they're going to die. That, that word for die, is, he's not just being poetic. In the Hebrew, it literally means death by execution. But we know the story. Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, right? But they didn't die. They lived. Why is that? Because God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's rich in mercy. It says in Genesis 3 that the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. If you remember the story, they tried to cover themselves, right? <laughs> and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Can you imagine what that realization must have felt like? Like, whoa, what's that? You know, what's going on? It says, so they sewed together fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. But what, what can wash away our sin? What fig leaves do that? What washes away our sin? We know the old song, nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? God killed an animal. That day, I personally believe it was a lamb. He killed an animal, shed its blood, and covered their sin and their shame. They were hiding because they were naked. Remember? The previous chapter, we, we see it, the chapter ends up, and they were naked and unashamed. Sin comes into the picture, and all of a sudden, they realize they're naked and they're hiding that is the picture of shame. And we know it well, don't we? Yeah. This prophetically speaks to what God did to his one and only son, Jesus, for our sake, for our shame. We see it in the story of Abraham and Isaac. God gave Abraham one final test before he began to fulfill all the promise he had made to him. He says, you're going to have to sacrifice your only son. And Abraham was willing to do it. Son, let's go. Where are we going? Uh, I'll tell you when we get there. How does that work? Right? But that's how much he believed God. That's how much faith he had in the Lord. But then at the last minute, Genesis 22 says, just then, right, when, when uh, Abraham was about to do it, it says the angel of the Lord showed up and called out to him, Abraham, Abraham, whoa, whoa. Abraham's like, good Lord, what? He says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. And, and it says that Abraham looked and saw behind him a ram in the thicket caught by its horn. So he went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering, listen, in place of his son. That sounds familiar, right? First Peter chapter three, verse 18, Peter says, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having put to death in his flesh, but having been made alive 
in the spirit. Listen to me. This is the theme of Yom Kippur. This is what it's all about. We deserved the wrath of God, but God loves us and wants to redeem us, to reconcile us back to himself. He sent his son in our place. Now everyone who believes in him will be saved. Everyone who by faith calls upon the name of the Lord will escape God's wrath. I'll say it this way. The blood of Jesus is the cleansing agent. Belief is the applicator. Everyone understand? Okay, now that we understand what atonement means, let's look at the Day of Atonement. Let's look at Yom Kippur. I really only have time to give you a few highlights, but you can go and study this out on your own. If you want some resources, you can email me. I'll send you um, some things that you can read and look at. But we're going to look at, we're going to start this by um, looking at Hebrews 9, starting in verse 21. And it's up on the screen. And it says, in the same way, listen to these words, super important. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood, sprinkled with blood, the tabernacle and all the vessels used in worship according to the law. In fact, nearly everything must be purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Okay, this is a reference to Yom Kippur and the work of Israel's high priest. This is the day the high priest went into Israel's most holy, sacred place. We call it the Holy of Holies. And he made kafar. He made atonement for the sins of Israel for the previous year, which sent them into the new year forgiven. And it was a very, very serious day. In fact, they referred to it as the day, which is interesting because they also referred to the coming of the Messiah as the day. So you can already see how this is ties into the end times and we've barely touched the surface. So Yom Kippur was 24 hours of, of resting, fasting, repenting. Everyone was super focused highly aware what was going on, especially the high priest. And you can read about all this in Leviticus 16. I encourage you to read that. I also encourage you to just read the whole book of Hebrews, right? Because <laughs> it helps us put the pieces together and understand that Jesus is our high priest, right? Remember what I said earlier, the day of atonement is a prophetic picture of the person and work of Jesus, Okay, and you're going to see it right away. Let's jump in. You ready? First thing I got to show you is that the high priest's everyday outfit was really elaborate. I mean, he was a devo, right? He dressed like a king. And you can read about this, his, this description of it in Exodus 28. In fact, if you read the description, I was reading it earlier this week, and it's way more elaborate than that. I mean, it's like, good grief, where do you even find all that stuff, you know? But he dressed like a king. But listen, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16 says that the high priest is to wear a sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments. He must tie a linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. And he says, these are holy garments. Holy garments? 
This is just white, cheap material. Isn't that right? He totally dresses down. In fact, he looks like a slave. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that we are to have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, the King of Kings, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to take our place and he dressed for the occasion. What the high priest wore on the day of atonement prophetically points to the person of Jesus. The king of kings came down and dressed down so that he could clothe us with robes of righteousness. Not only did the high priest look like a slave, on Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement, he kind of acted like a slave. He did everything, everything on the day of atonement. He had to do all the normal daily sacrifices plus all the special ones for that day. This prophetically speaks of the work of Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and man. There's just one, not many, only one way, right? There's only one way in truth and life. Only one way to get there, one door, one gate, one mediator, also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Isn't that good? And not only was he alone, I want to show you a few things that, that, that went into his life during this season. First of all, he had to leave home for a week before Yom Kippur to separate himself from life, to be alone, to separate himself. On Yom Kippur, <laughs> the priest had to wash in a special golden tub while people watched through a linen curtain showing his shadow. I was kind of going over my notes this week and and it reminded me of how the Roman soldiers humiliated Jesus by stripping him down. He was whipped He carried the cross all the way up to the hill of Golgotha. He was crucified right there in front of everyone, even his own mom, half naked, if not completely naked. There's no way to know. The high priest was sprinkled twice with the ashes of a red heifer. Don't have time to go into all that, but that is kind of odd, isn't it? And listen, all these things, and there's so many more things that he had to do. It'd take forever to go through the list. But all of these things that he had to do, he had to do five times a day. Five times a day. And he had, because he had to remain ritually clean. Otherwise, he would be disqualified from service. Okay, let's keep going. On Yom Kippur, along with all the other normal offerings, the priest would also sacrifice a bull and two goats. A bull and two goats. The bull was for himself 
and for the priesthood. First, he would lay his hands on the bull and he would confess his own personal sin onto the bull. When he was done, he would, he would turn his attention to the goats. Remember, there are two goats. They were the exact same size, the exact same color, and they were valued, monetarily valued at the same price. Can you imagine being, that being your job, having to go through all the flocks in Israel and trying to find two sheep that are exactly the same size, color, and, and, and value? Man, seems like that would be a tough job. Hopefully it paid well. I don't know. <laughs> The high priest had a golden vessel. It was like this little box that had two golden lots. These lots had something written on them, each one. One of them had to Yahweh written on it. The other one had for Azazel written on it. The high priest would shake the box and then randomly take one in each hand and he would hold them to the foreheads of the two goats and declare both of them, listen to me, both of them as a sin offering. Two goats, one offering. The goat that got for Azazel was turned around to face the people. The goat that got to Yahweh kept facing the altar. So one faced the people, one faced the altar. Once the high priest had um, cast the lots and labeled the goats, he'd go back to the bull. And this time he'd put his hands on its head and, and he would confess the sins of the rest of the priesthood. Remember the first time he confessed his own sins. Now he's confessing the sins of the rest of the priesthood. And now that his sin and, and the sins of the priesthood are confessed, he would slaughter the bull. He'd slaughter the bull and he would collect some of its blood in a bowl. Another priest would be standing by to keep the blood stirred so that it wouldn't congeal, so that it wouldn't coagulate. The next thing the high priest would do is he would take hot coals from the altar of sacrifice, put them in a golden fire pan, and he would take two handfuls of incense and put it on the burning coals. And he would make his first trip into the Holy of Holies. And he'd fill that room with this smoky fragrance. And for them, they thought that this was all about shielding himself from God, shielding the high priest, right, from full exposure to God's glory. Because no man shall look upon the Lord and live, right? Exodus 33, y'all have heard that. But to me, I, I read that and I think about what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. He says that we are to walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Once the room was filled with the fragrance, he'd go back to the altar, grab the bowl of bull's blood and go back into the Holy of Holies. Now watch this. He would take, he would take his finger and dip it into that bowl of bull's blood and carefully sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. He would take the blood and go once up and then seven times downward in a whipping motion upon the Ark of the Covenant. 
What does Isaiah 53, 5 say? But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Isn't that something? Okay, let's get back to the goats. We'll get back to the goats. When the high priest was done with the blood of the bull, he would come back out, slaughter the goat that was labeled to Yahweh, take the blood of that goat, go back into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle that blood on the Ark of the Covenant, just like he did the blood of the bull. Once up, seven times down in a whipping motion. Then he'd come back out and he would actually mix the two bowls together. The blood of the bull, the blood of the goat. And he would put some of it on the four horns of the altar of sacrifice. And then he would sprinkle this mixture upon the altar just like he did the Ark of the Covenant. And when he was finished, the high priest would go and he would lay his hands on the head of the goat labeled for Azazel. And he would confess the sins of the people on this goat. He would confess the sins of the people on this one. When he was finished, a, a priest would lead that goat out through the eastern gate, 10 miles out into the wilderness, and release him never to be seen again. Has anyone ever heard that term, scapegoat? Anybody heard that? That's where this came from. Azazel comes from the Hebrew word azel, which means escape. Now we get what the blood of the bull and the first goat is about. Jesus was whipped. Jesus' blood was shed. 1 Peter 1 verse 2 tells us that we have been sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. <laughs> he goes on in verse 19 to say again that we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, right? But what's up with that second goat? What's up with the goat labeled for Azazel. Y'all listen to me. The first goat prophetically points to how our sins are forgiven. Substitutionary atonement. Okay, it's a big churchy word. It's big theological words. Substitutionary atonement. It basically means the innocent in place of the guilty. The innocent in place of the guilty. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, right? The second goat, the scapegoat, is a prophetic picture of the effect of atonement, meaning the penalty of our sins is cast away, never to return. Psalms 103, verse 12 as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed 
our transgressions from us. Can I get an amen? Remember, two goats were considered one offering. Sin was forgiven and forgotten. Now, Israel had to do this every year. Every year, year after year, they had to do this. Look at Hebrews 10 with me. It's up on the screen. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, goes on in verse 14 to say, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Once for all. Do you guys get this? Once for all, do you realize what that means? It means that Jesus didn't just cover over our sins. It means that he cleansed us completely from our sins. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In other words, if we live as people of faith, if we live like we say we believe that forgiveness only comes through the person and work of Jesus, it says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. Listen, cleansed, not covered, cleansed. This is huge. Everybody understand what I'm, you picking up what I'm laying down? You with me? Listen, when you don't understand this, you'll be like Adam and Eve looking for a way to cover your sin. Looking for a way to, to get rid of your own shame, your own guilt, a way to cover your own regret. You're going to, you'll work harder. You're going to pray longer. You're going to sing louder. You're going to give greater. All those things are fine. All those things are, are very good, but they won't cleanse your sin. They won't even cover your sin. <laughs> Only the blood of Jesus can do that. And listen, belief is the applicator. I want you to stand with me. And I want us to read John 3.16 together. I want us to read it out loud together. Okay? Well, you know, we'd like to read nice and loud. But let's read this together. You ready? And, and let's give it everything we've got. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever...
God, I thank you for this morning, and I'm so glad that we've still have the privilege to, to gather in the name of Jesus and to invite the Holy Spirit to come and move among us to counsel, to comfort, to convict us of sin, to guide us into all truth, to empower us to live a life worthy of the calling we've received. And I pray this morning for everyone that is here that by your spirit, you would impart the power to live a godly life. Your divine power right now impart something. And I pray that everyone with their hand raised is receiving. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.